Welcome to a special mini-season of Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcasts and a co-host of The Waves, Slate's show about feminism and gender. This episode is one of five and they are all available in your feed right now about second actors, people who have made a dramatic career pivot at some point in their lives. In this episode, I'll be talking to Jerry Allen, who left Delta Airlines in his late 50s to achieve his lifelong dream of becoming a park ranger. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Jerry, please tell me how your job situation changed over the course of your work life. Well, I was I started off my job request when I was younger was always to be a national park ranger. I wanted to be like Mr. Mr. Ranger and Yogi Bear. <laughs> and when I was a kid, I would always go to the national parks. My parents would take us out of school and take us to the national parks because they thought that was important. And we went to several parks, and I always wanted to be a ranger. But I never could be one. I um, went to college, and I majored in, in biology with a major in outdoor recreation and forestry and fisheries biology and wildlife management. But in the middle of college, I got I was had to go into the military back at that time. And then when I got out of the military, I went back to school. And I was married at that time, and we ended up having and had a child. And by the time I finally graduated, there weren't any jobs in the National Park Service. So I went to work for Delta Airlines as a chemist, as a lab technician. And over the period of years, I, that developed into I helped develop their environmental program. But every time we would go on vacation, we'd always go to the national parks. But I enjoyed the environmental work. And over the next 20 years or 25 years, we helped. I helped develop their environmental program and then I got into fuel, cleaning up fuel spills and so forth like that. And But still went to the national parks, still <laughs> wanted to be a ranger. And then finally, when I, they offered a retirement program, I was, we took it. And my wife said, well, you've talked about being a park ranger forever. Why don't you do it now? And I said, well, we'll give it a shot. So for about four months, I wrote letters to about 80 national parks and finally got hired to work as a national park fee collector. And from that, I've developed my finally found what I was chasing as being a park ranger over the next 10 or 15 years. That's pretty much a summary of what happened. All right. Well, we'll get into a bit more detail, but that's a, a lovely uh, survey. I remember another time when we talked, you told me that when you were working at Delta and you would go on vacation to a national park, you would see the rangers and you'd say, that guy's got my job. That's right. That sucker's got my job and that's <laughs> what I should be doing. <laughs> 
<laughs> and my wife says, well, we've got to keep feeding the kids, so we won't be one quite yet, but maybe sometime later. So was that always part of your calculation? You know, you mentioned that, that you had to, you know, be in the service. It was You were in college around the time of the Vietnam War. Did, were you always kind of conscious that, that this was like your second choice profession when you were working at Delta? No, I was... Um, you know, when you when you get out of college and you've got two young children, mm. you have to take care of them. And I always wanted to still dream to be in a park ranger, but I didn't think the opportunity would ever arise. But as we traveled around the country on different vacations, I'd talk to different park personnel, and they said, you know, they're not all everybody here working's not young. Huh. You know, maybe when you get older, if you have to if you ever leave Delta, you could try then. And so I kept it in the back of my mind, but it was not a driving force until. Delta offered me an opportunity to leave early with an early retirement, and I was still only 55 or 56 when I left Delta. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I still had another 10 or 15 years or more I could keep working. So then the idea, and I have to say that my wife supported it a great deal, was let's try it out. You know, I always want to do it, so let's don't give up. Let's keep doing it. The kids are gone or going, and we might as well give it a shot. What the heck? Well, before we get to your life as a, a park ranger, tell me what what was your day-to-day -day like at Delta? What kind of, you said you've, you had various jobs over the years. Was it office work? What kind of stuff? When I graduated from college, I couldn't get a job. I mean, what can you do with a biology degree? And, you know, <laughs> so I, uh, a friend of mine offered me a job as a, um, working as an assistant engineer, working and building a laboratory. And it was on the Delta facilities in Atlanta. And so I was building the lab and I thought that this is something I had a lot of chemistry in college. And I said, well, I could work in this lab and maybe from that move into something more exciting at Delta Airlines. So I got the job in the lab, and I worked in the lab for a while, and then I went off to become a computer programmer and realized that was not my thing. <laughs> so I went back to the lab, and one day I was out. They had a question, how do we get rid of all this oil that all these aircraft are using? We don't have any place to get rid of it. So I started developing a program on how to get rid of the oil in an environmentally sound way of doing it. They didn't have a big environmental program at the time. Mm. And from that, I developed the oil, oil disposal, all of the maintenance facilities at Delta in the in domestic, and then I went to all the facilities domestically in, in um, Delta. And from that, we started moving into doing uh, more air work, more you know, runoff work and so forth like that. But then uh, after about 15 years of doing that, I was getting a little tired of that. And they offered me a job as a um, someone working in fuel quality. That meant that I would go out and check the fuel quality all over the all the airports all over the world. Wow. And if they had a spill, an environmental spill or some type of problem with tanks or storage, then it was my job to clean that up, too. So I did that for another 10 years. And um, that's pretty much how I got stayed in the environmental part, but still dreaming of someday being Mr. Ranger. <laughs> it was obviously a very persistent dream. I mean, I think a lot of people, when they're young, they think, oh, I would like to. And they, you know, it's, it's something that appeals to them when they're a kid. But it never, did it change at all? Did the nature of your, how you viewed being a park ranger change? I mean, it sounds like you were talking to a lot of other rangers and getting a kind of more rounded idea of what it meant to be a ranger. Yes. You know, as I talked to each ranger, I realized that, that it involved a lot of different things to work for the park service, but I mainly wanted to work with the public and mm. talking to the public, explaining about each individual park or program that was going on at that particular park. So from the time I was eight years old and standing in the middle of Mammoth Cave and the guy explaining to me what was going on there, that's what I wanted to be, and it's always stayed there. <laughs> That's amazing. So you had this opportunity to leave Delta. You, as you say, you were 55 or 56. 
And you had yes. had, you know, you've just described your job. That sounds like a really good job. You're flying around. You're, you know, you're a senior scientist. It's, it's a pretty good deal. But when you wanted to be a park ranger for the first time, you, I think you mentioned earlier, what was it, fee collector? What, what did that mean? Well, you can't just jump into the National Park Service and be Mr. Ranger. You've got to, you've got to work your way up to it. And it's an awful hard job to get. It's very difficult because everybody wants to be one, and they mm-hmm. think it's a wonderful job. Don't They don't realize what's involved. But I wanted to wear the uniform. I wanted to wear the hat. And the <laughs> only way I could start, the only jobs I was offered, was at one park, Vicksburg National Military Park. They needed a guy that would take up the $5 when you came into the park. Well, you know, that didn't sound too exciting at the point, but still I was going to be able to wear that spiffy hat. <laughs> and so I, I took the job with plans on, because the lady that I was going to work for there said, you can expand when you get there. We can start and teach you other things if you're interested. So instead of just collecting the money at the gate when they came in, I also asked if, on my, some of my off time if I could start working with the park rangers as a park guide and developing programs around different battle, battle sites in the Vicksburg National Military Park. And then I also took part in when they started shooting the cannon, Civil War cannons. I asked to be on that thing, on that <laughs> crew too. So I did all that. And from that, I could start developing ideas on how I was going to do these programs. And they would let me do some of these programs and let me break into doing it that way. And then when I left Vicksburg and went to work in, um, went to work at St. Simon's, at St. Simon's, Georgia, I had a priest, priest uh, at a pre revolutionary park. I started as a park guide, and I started giving programs there. Then I went to Andersonville and gave programs there, and then finally got the opportunity to be a real official park ranger when I went to Chickamauga Chattanooga National Military Park up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And from there, I developed more programs and started getting involved with uh, with shooting black powder and shooting cannons and, and teaching people how to do that all over the southeast. And so I got into shooting cannons for several three two or three years and getting paid for it you know that was fun for a while too and so it just fulfilled everything and i did that until one day i decided it was time to stop okay but now you you and retire you, you retire you just described kind of moving along from you know vicksburg to st simons to andersonville to your final posting but i feel like that was actually there was a lot involved in that because as you say, when you first started as, as a fee taker, even though you did this other, or a fee collector, even though you did all this other work, you were basically having lived in, in Georgia, having lived in Atlanta, in the Atlanta area in a sort of settled way and in your first profession, it, you know, you, you kind of glossed over the difficulties that were involved in moving from park to park because you did have to keep, you know, boxing and unboxing all your, all your worldly goods, right? <laughs> I was very lucky. My wife was extremely supportive. She knew since I'd known my wife since we were 10 years old. Oh. And she knew all along I wanted to be a park ranger. So anytime an opportunity would come, she would gladly move. As I said, the kids were gone at that point. Yeah. And we moved probably, you know, not counting when we moved to Atlanta from school and all that stuff. But when we got in the park service, we must have moved eight different times in 15 years. Wow. And she always... She always supported it. She always has said, if this is this is what you want to do, this is what you should do. Don't back down. Keep following it because you'll probably never have the opportunity to do it again. So she was extremely supportive of it, and I was very lucky on that. So yeah. it was a lot of moving. Yeah. But it was all an adventure. My life's been an adventure, and she was, <laughs> she was part of it, and it's always been an adventure, and that's what we enjoyed about it. That's amazing. But now – 
these eight moves in 15 years, did that ever kind of shake your faith that this was what you wanted to do? Never. <laughs> Never. Every every move was a move upward into in my toward my quest uh-huh. of being a park ranger. And I once I made park ranger, I could have moved a little bit further if I wanted to, but mm. I was getting older, you know, I was getting in my in my sixties and latter part of my sixties and mm. I fulfilled what I was looking for and I mm-hmm. saw no reason to go any further. I was past the age of trying to chase anything when I already re- already received what I what I wanted to do. So Right, right. Never any challenges at all. She we she and I had a great time moving. Every time was an adventure, and we were very lucky. Well, I'm also, I mean, this is maybe a reflection of my being an urban dweller, but sad to say, I've never been to any of the parks that you worked at. But something tells me they're not in urban centers. I mean, you were, it seems like some of these places you were a little bit, um, I'm not going to say in the sticks, but in, in pretty rural or somewhat isolated areas, right? In the sticks is pretty is pretty much descriptive of it, you know. Uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi is it was on the Mississippi River. It's not a very it's not a small town, but it's not a real big one. But the battle, you know, at the time was because the battles in Vicksburg was because they were trying to control the Mississippi River. So mm-hmm. it was most of the parks I worked at is what we refer to as cannonball parks. I didn't work in the um, pretty parks, the nature mm-hmm. parks, Yellowstone, Yosemite, and stuff, Smoky Mountains. That's the one everybody thinks of. Mm-hmm. I worked in the historical parks, and so. A lot of the historical places like Andersonville, uh, you know, I, I don't know. You say you've never been to it. It's a, it's a place right in the southeast Georgia. I mean, mm. south southern Georgia that's in the middle of nowhere. That's where they put this prison camp. Mm. And we had to live about about 20 miles away from We had to live in a little town called America's Georgia. But we didn't mind at all. We got to meet a whole lot of different people meet a whole lot of different type of personalities and so forth. And, you know, and then we moved to our final place in um, Chattanooga and Chickamauga is right on you know, Lookout Mountain. That was a pretty big place, but the battlefield was still away from all the activity. And so, yeah, we we, we lived in the sticks some and we lived uh, in the suburbs some, but mostly it was in the sticks. And <laughs> that's okay. We, that's we, okay. we enjoyed it. Yeah, I love that phrase, cannonball parks. So you're, I know we'll get a little bit to your cannonball shooting in a, in a little while, but can you tell me a little bit about what park rangers do in those parks? I mean, are they telling historical stories? Are they guiding people around battlefields? For, for those of us, I hope one day to go to one of these parks, but for those of us who haven't visited at this point, what kind of interaction do rangers have with the visitors to these parks? Well, when I started with the Park Service, you know, 15 years ago, so forth, the the park guides are the ones that pretty much took people on the on different walks and sort of regurgitated the same story over and over again. Mm. The park rangers are more of an educational type of situation where we go to schools, we explain to people that have never been around a park what was there, and we would go to we take people in the different parks where. You weren't used to the normal stories. A good park ranger would make the story very interesting and not just, you know, another dull story. So mm. you, know, you had different type people give different type of programs. But um, you know, well, I would do one program in Fort Frederica where they when the people back in the seventeen hundreds said they couldn't have material to build their houses. They had to learn how to make them make out of a special type of material. It was like concrete, but it came from oyster shells and sand and so forth like that. So there's wow. a lot of education involved. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it depends on how much the ranger wanted to get into the depth of, you know, the depth of the story they wanted to tell. So it really was up to individual range, ranger at each individual park that uh, developed stories from that park. Or the, and then I would go to the schools and I explained to the kids what was going on. And we then we'd go and educate them by 
letting them dress up like a soldier or stuff mm-hmm. like that. So it was very, it was a lot like a school teacher, and I hope it was an enlightening type of school teacher job. Right. It does sound. I mean, clearly, it is an educational uh, role, but in a uniform. Yes. A spiffy uniform. <laughs> Very spiffy uniform with a hat. Very important, with that a flat hat. flat hat. That was great. <laughs> yes, of course. But when I was doing a lot of them, I wouldn't be wearing the uniform. I'd be wearing the uniform of, an, of a British soldier in Fort uh-huh. Frederica. Or I'd be in a Confederate uniform in Andersonville. Or I'd be in a Union uniform up in Chickamauga, Chattanooga, or Vicksburg. Mm. It all depends on what's going on there. And, you know, and so that it all went from that. And then we'd have other jobs. We'd have those responsibilities that were... Setting up, you know, for special events and so forth like that. And I even went up and fought forest wildfires up in Mo- in Montana, Glacier National Forest, when they oh. needed help doing that. So it was it was a pretty exciting job, really was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Now, what's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Oh, you have mentioned a couple of times about uh, firing cannonballs. That clearly mm-hmm. was something that you were into. Now, first of all, why why is that historically relevant? Why why is it? I can see that it would be cool for kids to shoot a cannonball, but why is that right. historically important? What what's what's the kind of educational benefit of that? The educational benefit of seeing the 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 cannon, also the rifles they used both in the pre-revolutionary war and then during the Civil War, was so people can realize it's not like you see on TV. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know it's a whole experience when he's t- explaining to people. A good example is when I was working at Chickamauga in Chattanooga. You know the cannons make a lot of noise and that attracts people's attention, <laughs> and they make a lot of smoke and they make a lot of noise and you know but they still can't understand the damage it did and what yeah. the effect on a person running across the field with 20 of these things shooting at you. So we would use that as an example. I had one program where I had, I brought in cannons from about seven different national parks in the South, Civil War cannons. Well, they couldn't actually shoot the old cannons, but they were built just like them. And there'd be some place where, you know, so like say if you're at Gettysburg or someplace in Chattanooga where there's a battlefield you always hear about, but you can't realize what's there. We would set these cannons up on a long line and we would get these reenactors and we would have them, 
you know, reenacted the charge into the cannons and so forth. Now we weren't using real cannonballs; it was all just it was all blanks. Uh-huh. But when you see what the, these men had to run across, yeah. they had to run across this open field with twenty cannons facing them, and knowing that most of them were going to be chopped in half because uh. we'd make a very descriptive story about what happened <laughs> when they would shoot these cannons. It was very education. It was and it was very shocking to these people, and it was a it really got their attention. They realized it was not just like John Wayne at the Alamo or something like that that people died and the, the misery and so forth these men went through. And yep. while that sounds rough, it's part of the education to understand what the country, what people went through in this country to make the country as it is now. Indeed. You also mentioned their reenactors, and it makes me think that as a park ranger, especially on a historical park, you are, you know, showing kids, you know, telling them, getting them excited, getting them, revealing history to them, bringing it alive. But you also, I imagine, were also kind of working with people who consider themselves experts, who were just really, really dedicated to this era of history, who are maybe doing a tour of maybe Civil War sites or whatever. How was it different working with kind of adults who were maybe experts or considered themselves experts, different from working with Boy, the kids? You hit a you hit a button there. It's very sensitive. The um, most a lot of these reenactors both uh, the ones that I worked with in the pre-revolutionary wars with the Indian fights and so forth down in South Georgia. And in the Civil War, a lot of them, the, the war's not over yet. Huh. You know, they, they, they get very serious in there. In their, they, it's, we, had, we had to manage that to make sure that the story they, that we asked them to interpret was the, sh- the story we wanted them, that we wanted them to, to show. Yeah. And so there was quite a bit of, we had some conflicts and we had learned some groups you could work with, some you couldn't. You know, we had strict rules on how they could shoot cannons to make it safe. Mm-hmm. And some of them didn't want to do it. And we just tell them they couldn't come. Or when they went to Andersonville, I don't know if you know much about Andersonville, but it was a Confederate Civil War prison, prisoner, mm-hmm. prisoner of war camp down in Andersonville, Georgia. It was built for like, 7,000 people, and they had 35,000 people in there, and it was just, just a terrible place. Every year on the anniversary, we would, have, uh, we would have reenactors come in and show and then have the public see how these guys lived in this camp and how they ate or how they didn't eat and then the, the abuse they went through and the strength they had to and the, and the courage they had to go through this and still remain strong in their faith in the country. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was a little bit of overlooking, make sure, making sure that people told the story as we wanted it told and mm-hmm. not as they think um, their great relatives did that won the whole war by themselves. Right, right. There is a real, you know, real benefit to being on the ground, right, to saying this is where this happened, this was the way that the, um, uh, the topography of the ground, they were above and all that. I mean, there, it, there is still a great benefit to actually being there and seeing where things happened, right? There's nothing better than being right where it's going on. Even though we can we can reproduce it on film and we can get you know make it what we thought it looked like, you can't really realize the impact of what happened. Like in the Cannonball Parks, you know, when you when you see a cannon go off in the movie or on a picture, you know, you see a little smoke come out. But you know, if you, you think of the movies, but when we would shoot them, we'd shoot some of them late, not late at night, but when it's getting somewhat dark and. Mm-hmm. The, when the flames go out 30 feet and they go up 10 feet from out of the wet, sets it off and so forth like that, that shocks everybody. And that's probably the most most effective way to realize that it was it was a terrible thing that happened. Right. So you got your dream. You worked as a park ranger. What was the most difficult part of the transition? What what uh, Where did you kind of feel the, the toughest challenge as far as making that shift? Well, 
I found research was was somewhat tough, but I enjoyed the I enjoyed the subject matter so much. I don't want to say it was not much of a challenge, but I loved it so much. It was financing, like when I want when I wanted to have something special done at one of the parks, and it would take money to like get a special yeah. uniform or get a special type of display made or getting a special type. I had to order a cannon one time and stuff like that. <laughs> Finance was very it was very difficult, and I'm sure they're sure they're still going through that now. Yeah, but challenges. I loved it so much, you and I, that I didn't really face too many challenges. I had no challenges on my moves. Mm-hmm. The only challenges I had, I was impatient. I wanted to be a park <laughs> ranger, and I would, but I would, but I was very lucky because some people get in parks and never leave. And I was, I have a personality that that sort of shows that how much I enjoy things. And so, um, mm-hmm. I was very lucky to work with the people that if I came up with an idea that's totally and completely off, everybody thought I was a little crazy. My bosses would let me do it anyway because they had faith in what I was doing. And most of them, not all, Mm -hmm. but most of them turned out quite well. I got some very good responses, and I was very proud of the work I did. So there was a kind of an entrepreneurial aspect to your your part rangering, right, that you would – you you came up with some with some concepts uh, and and kind of sold them to the to the service so that so that you could make them into a reality. Yes, yes, I did that on several things. Yes. So clearly, you you love this job, but what was your favorite part of it? What 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 was what's the thing that you look back now, having retired, and like that was I loved doing that. What what's what's one of your favorite memories of it? Well, my favorite memory was. Um, of course, the most courageous memories places I work with is in Andersonville, which is a terrible, terrible place. Uh, but I, but they have a museum there that's a prisoner of war museum that was very, very rough. It was very mm. rough because it was the subject matter was rough. And they have a national, they have a national cemetery that's still being used there. And that you know, and I, and I got involved with working with, with the national cemeteries and working there and so forth. And so that was a very that was a hard part, but it was of the ones I I would think the most rewarding would be that one because of seeing all the stories of that we had actual POWs from from World War II and from Vietnam and so forth who would come and give programs, and that wow. was very good. In fact, we had one program arranged where a guy came and he was I don't know if you ever saw an old movie. I'm aging myself. It was called The Great Escape. Oh yeah, and it was yeah. um. And there was so one of the guys that was involved with the digging of the tunnels in the Great Escape came and gave a program. Wow, wow. And we would give and we gave a program from a, gave a program with a man that was a POW for eight years and was in solitary for six years of it. And um, he was uh, what he went through and the stories he told that he could relate to kids very well. You know, I can't mm-hmm. tell what it was like to be a POW, but mm-hmm. he could. Mm-hmm. And we developed those programs very well. And then there's the program I was telling you about at Fort Frederica, which was a pre uh, pre revolutionary town and fort that was built south of Savannah and north of Jacksonville, north of St. Augustine, where how they had to build had to build houses out of certain materials. And I mm-hmm. did a lot of research, about two, about a year and a half worth of research all over the country. I did research to find out how they actually would make make this concrete out of out of uh, out of oyster shells and sand and water and the process, the chemical process they could use through heat by fires and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I learned to develop and I actually made Made at, made structures out of that, and that was very well received. So, yeah, it was, I, I think you know, I, I, there's quite a few things I was proud I did, and it was um, it took a lot, it took a lot of faith in myself and a lot of faith in my bosses to let me do it. Yeah, what are some hard things that you remember about the process of becoming a park ranger? Well, the hardest thing I ran into in the park service, and I, and this is my own personal problem is. I love talking to kids, but there's one certain age I just could not reach. You know, I could not reach them, and I tried everything I could to reach these kids. And these kids were 
I hate to say the demographic ages, but the, the ages were, I'll tell you, because you know, from kindergarten, and I worked with kids from pre-kindergarten all the way up to the fifth grade who were very receptive. Mm. They just loved seeing me in these crazy uniforms and <laughs> shooting the little guns and stuff like that. that. That was pretty cool. And in high school, surprisingly, they were very easy to work with too because they paid attention and you could get their attention quite easily. Mm. Middle school, that was a challenge because they mm. had other things on their mind when they were on a field trip with their boys and girls together and they you know i could sit there and talk to 50 of them maybe one kid was paying attention but that was probably the working with certain age groups could be tough Mm -hmm. adults adults could be a challenge too but uh but kids were wonderful to work with especially the ones i enjoyed the most were from kindergarten up to fifth through fifth grade is there one place either that you have worked in or visited that you think is not well enough known that people really need to go and see, that people will really get a lot out of it, but it's just not as well known as, as some of the others? Uh, where would you recommend our listeners visit? I think recommend everybody visit Andersonville. The um, other ones, you know, if you go to Vicksburg or if you go to Chickamauga, Chattanooga or Gettysburg or Manassas or any other ones, those are all the ones, you know, you've seen stories of and so forth like that. And they've made movies of and they, you know, you have seen John Wayne and all that. I'm aging myself there too. But anyway, <laughs> seeing people, uh, seeing people involved with those battles, they're always you know, battles they bring up when they're just trying to throw some type of history about the Civil War. Andersonville is is a magnificent place. It's both sad and wonderful. So I would recommend Andersonville over any of them. Of, of all my parks, that's the one I enjoyed working the most. And that's in Georgia, right? Yes. South, southwest Georgia is just north of um, uh, Albany, uh, close about 60 miles from Macon. Do you have any advice for anybody who's pondering making a big change, even if it might you know, include some some big disruptions in their life of the kind that you experience moving around, kind of selling up your house and, 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 and going to be shifting from place to place. If anybody's facing that kind of decision, what kind of advice would you have for them? If you want to do something bad enough and you're willing to go to work on it, remember, it took me 55 years to be a park ranger. <laughs> if you want it bad enough and things fall your way and it takes a lot of effort, don't give up on it. But it, but everybody won't reach it, but at least you need to try. And I was very lucky to try. And, of course, I had a, a partner. My wife supported me completely. And that was probably the biggest one. Without Maybe. her, it wouldn't yeah. have happened. <laughs> All right. Jerry Allen, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to hear your story, and uh, we thank you very much. Well, thank you. Appreciate it very much. Have a good day. <laughs> you too. That's it for this special bonus episode of Working, but don't worry, there are four more episodes about second actors available to listen to right now. If you have any thoughts about the show, you can write to me or to Jordan Weissman at working at slate.com. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. Our producer is Jessamine Molly. Thank you for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.